This is Dr. Holly Lucille's Mindful Medicine. Here's Dr. Holly Lucille. Hi, mindful listeners. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with us. I'm so excited about this episode. I know that I say that all the time, but as a practicing uh, doctor, I I kind of have a saying. I heard myself say it this week a few times when I'm looking at my patients and we're talking through things and we're thinking through things. And I basically say, look, this is not a protocol. This is a relationship. I feel that way. I feel that, yes, I have an extensive education and I can take a clinical presentation and grab the history, have a clinical you know, hypothesis, maybe get some more data from laboratory testing, whether it be reference range or functional medicine testing, and put it all together and figure out a good plan. But that protocol, that plan is nothing without me being really an intricate part of this person's life, meaning it's a relationship. It's so much more than a plan or a protocol. And today I have an MD, a medical doctor. His name is Dr. Jack Cochran. And we're going to be talking about the physician's role in and how important it is when it comes to not only being a practitioner, but also a healer, a leader, and a partner with patients and their families. Let me introduce Dr. Jack Cochran. He is a healthcare professional and author on a broad range of healthcare topics with a focus on national health policy development, integrative care, health innovation systems, and physician leadership. Dr. Cochran, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Great to be with you. So you've got such an extensive background. I mean, a former executive director and CEO of the Permanente Federation, and you have addressed national governors, associations, testified before congressional committees on health, on education, labor, pensions. Your work in this um, policy development and healthcare issue far beyond your practice is extensive. Um, So, you know, obviously healthcare is a big top line news item in our country. We hear and read about problems in the healthcare uh, system every day. So from your point of view, what are the biggest issues in healthcare? And do you see ways that we can actually get to the solutions? Yes, uh, I absolutely do. And, and thank you for asking. Well, first of all, you, you can't go through a day without seeing a headline or hearing a story about healthcare. And what is interesting about the stories is the contrast. On the one hand, you will hear about miracles and breakthroughs and cures and improvements that are uh, that are hopeful and needed and, and really give great uh, promise to patients and to the physician as they care for patients in these points of great vulnerability. At the same time, you hear stories about problems with access, uneven quality, things that people can't afford. And so what has happened is, while things have gotten a lot better in many ways, the whole healthcare system has become more complex. And is that, and that is the complexity that the patients and physicians are now finding themselves every day. And a very uh, unfortunate statistic is that while these miracles and cures and improvements are going on all the time, we still have a significant problems with medical error. And medical error is the number three cause of death in patients in this country after heart disease and cancer. And that's a that's a situation that uh, we don't like to understand it, but it really is real. The statistics are valid and proven. But it's in that same backdrop that we're doing miraculous and wonderful things. And that's the issue of complexity. The other issue is 
the average American family and the issue of affordability. We are clinicians. We are healers. And that healer role is based on the covenant of trust that comes from being competent, being compassionate, being available, and, and giving the, the patients the, the ability to express themselves, and we will listen, we will diagnose, and when we are right, we will continue to pursue that course, and when we need to course correct, we do that. It is a beautiful, long-term trusting relationship, and as you so clearly pointed out, it's not about being perfectly correct and knowing all the answers all the time. So it is this contrast between great results, great science, and great opportunities, and patients still getting unevenness of quality and difficulties with affordability. In fact, patients and families today are doing something every day, every week, that, that, that really illustrates this very vividly. Because patients have seen the increase in premium costs for their insurance, they have, they have tried to mitigate that by getting into more cost-sharing, high-deductible, and those products are really uh, designed to keep the premium down, but they also carry a risk. It's almost like a bet. They are betting that that premium will carry them through and they won't have those other costs. But here's what happens every month at the kitchen tables across this country. Patients and families are saying to each other, well, this month, Johnny needs a MRI to look at his knee, but our refrigerator just went out, and they both are $1,000 out of the monthly budget. This month, we're going to have to get the refrigerator. And the next month, it's, well, so-and-so needs to have uh, myringotomy and tubes for her ear infections, but I had the clutch go out in my truck. This month, we've got to pay for the truck. And so families are rationing healthcare at the kitchen table every day in, in, in every city in this country. Yeah. That's why I say to, to my colleagues, to you and other colleagues, yes, we must continue to be the trusted, compassionate, caring healer. But we must also say, because doctors have such disproportionate impact on healthcare in terms of its cost and its quality, it's not that we're more important. It's just that we have disproportionate impact. Because of that, we have to accept disproportionate accountability. And that leads that, that led me to the healer has to be central and has to be the, the trusted, guarded part of the relationship. But we also have to get involved in issues around access and affordability and cost. And that's where we have to step forward, deeply understand the plight of patients and families and become leaders not to take over, not to control, but to be participants with other leaders in healthcare that are in finance and hospital and IT so that we are leading in addition to being healers. And that last level of complexity with the addition of IT and more knowledge and more information means we also have to learn and develop our skills as partners. And that's the premises around healer, leader, and partner. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious that you eat, live and breathe and think about this topic all of the time. I mean, you know, it's true. We tend to always think of doctors as being our clinical source, right, for advice and care. But you you have definitely expanded on that. Uh, you are taking the role of the physician, the practitioner into greater depths when it comes to the relationship with patients. Yes, I see patients having significant issues beyond just their clinical experience, access to the clinical experience, affordability of the clinical experience, 
the complexity of care. And so we can either stay in our lane and say all we are is the exam room, operating room, emergency room clinician, and everything else is somebody else's business. If we take that position, we have left the patient alone in those situations. And I don't think doctors should be uh, in charge of everything and, and be the single voice and all that. But they should have that trusted sense that we are clinicians, we are healers, and we're here to represent patients and families in broader conversations and in bigger challenges than just the clinical decision. Well, uh, it makes sense to me. I mean, and um, I, I, I hope, I mean, so you're not only, in my opinion, a true patient and consumer advocate when it comes to healthcare, but you're really like a colleague and physician advocate when it comes to expanding the roles and, to your point, really trying to help solve for some of the issues that are so pervasive and consistent in our healthcare, um, quote-unquote, industry. Um, so what, what are the kinds right. of things physicians should be thinking about um, as they hear you, as they get this message probably more and more as time goes on? Um, to, you know, approach this broader responsibility? Well, I think that uh, I've tried to outline a framework of roles, uh, and let me just say two other things a little bit parenthetically, as I mentioned this. Physicians are not more important than nurses, patients, pharmacists, finance people, etc. But we have disproportionate impact because of our trusting relationship and people trust us for medical information. Interestingly, the most trusted medical professional across the board is nursing and nurses. But trusted, as far as trust for clinical information, it's still physicians. So we still have a position of great trust. There's another inconvenient reality that's going on. Not every doctor is getting happier every day. And physicians have been in a system or next to or outside of a system that's been changing fairly rapidly. And the rapid changes have been coming from technology and finance and insurance and government and all kinds of places where we are just puzzled about why they don't get it. And they're causing problems that are making our lives more complex and our lives more difficult. So in addition to the plight of the patient and the family, there's another big stake here, and that's the stake of the profession. Do we quit? And many of us have, and some of us will continue to quit. Retire early, find other roles, get out. If we do that, if we opt out of our profession, then we're either turning it over to somebody else or we're saying to the patient, sorry, this no longer works for me. And I will contrast that with, with us, me, you, when we were 21. When we were 21 years old, we were finishing a, a rigorous educational process, high school, college, etc., and we were going to apply to a medical school. And as part of that process, we had to have the, the requisite grades and, and test scores, et cetera. We also had to write a couple of sentences, a couple of paragraphs about why we wanted to enter this profession. And if you went back and reread your own application, it might just bring a tear to your eye because you were saying, oh, my goodness, listen to her, listen to him, listen to those words. They are teeming with idealism. Where is that 21-year-old idealist? Where, where is that person that I was certain who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do? Well, the fact is we have been buffeted around through the process because we have said the only role I play as clinician, everything else is up to somebody else. 
That's another reason. So it's the patient and family, and then it's the profession itself. We have to roll up our sleeves and pop in. And so when there's an issue, we have to say, wait a second, I have an opinion. I'm not going to be a tyrant, but I'm not going to be a victim. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a leader. I'm going to learn some leadership skills. I'm going to volunteer a little bit of my time. I'm going to join organizations to support that because we're not only going to make it better for patients and families, we're going to make it better for the profession. We have to have this profession be one that continues to be desirable and honored and continues to attract the best and brightest. And so when a high percentage of us are ready to leave, we're not leaving patients, we're leaving a profession behind. So how does it, you know, I'm completely inspired and I think this makes sense, you know. So yeah, we want doctors to be happy. We want them to be fulfilled. How does this conversation go over when you're talking to a colleague of yours that is, let's just use the term that is very familiar, you know, burnt out from not only the system, but perhaps, well, the system, but seeing patients over and over and over and over again, perhaps not getting best outcomes because they don't have the time to gather the information and spend with the patients based on their insurance reimbursement and the entire machine. When you look at them and you tell them, listen, we got to do more, you know, uh, Yes, you're a great practitioner, and I'm so sorry that you have limited time, but you've got to do more. How do they respond? How, how, how do you get them to see that maybe taking one step forward uh, is going to, or one step back, I should say, is going to help the entire profession and outcomes get like 78 steps forward? Great. That is, that is the central question of my wakefulness at night, isn't it? Because um, I wish I said... I could say to you, ah, but you didn't listen. I have the magic formula. And once people hear the good words from Dr. Cochran, the marching begins and the marching doesn't stop until people have taken the, the hill. It is not a simple sharing of message or trying to be provocative or inspirational. It is about a process of opening this conversation. You didn't think much about healer, leader, and partner an hour ago. And now you're wondering, what is this about? What could this be about? I will tell you my experience, because I pre present um, talks on physician leadership and physician accountability. And by the way, I am a pro-doctor doctor. I believe in us. I believe that we are good people who want to do good most of the time. It does not mean that I have not met the occasional very difficult person or, or, uh, or uh, tyrannical doctor, etc. But I believe that, that basically we tend to want to do the right thing. So when I talk like this, I've been, you and I have been talking, and there's 100 people listening, here's what I find. About a third of them start to get angry as they hear me, and they get more angry as I continue. And by the time I'm done, they're quite angry. And their conclusion is, this guy doesn't get it. This guy doesn't know what reality is like. This guy doesn't understand how bad we have been messed up by insurance companies and hospitals and government and Medicare and Obama. And that's one third. Another third go, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh, he may be right. I, I think that I better take some notes and I better listen because I think what he's saying is if we just quit and we just do what we're doing now, that's one option. Things will not only not get better, they will get worse at a, at a rate that we don't control. And what's the third group? The third group kind of looks at the other two and tries to figure out which one they're in. They're, they're a little bit more ambivalent. But these two groups are very clear. 
And so you don't create major change by having one persuasive speech or one persuasive premise or one persuasive set of data that we all want to change. If that was true, we would all do the same type of surgeries and prescribing for, for certain conditions. But you do start to say, when people go, I think he's right. I'm afraid he's right. I'm pretty sure he's right. How do we start opting in? How do we <clears throat> become more impactful and become better? And not only the exam room and the operating room and the uh, uh, emergency room, but the boardroom and other places where we have to have some influence. And that's the journey. The journey is uh, the first step is to say we can't be helpless. We must not be helpless because patients are going to be left without us. And, yes, we need great IT and computer systems and artificial intelligence and all the miracles of the, of the IT world. But at some point in time, even good intelligence that comes from big data and analytics and algorithms still needs some sort of human interpretation and to look into the eyes and to listen to the fear. And so far, machines don't do that well. So we have to, to get off the sidelines to say, it's not going to look like it does today, but I'll be damned if I'm going to stay on the sidelines and let patients be taken over by, by phone call medicine or, uh, or you know, algorithmic decision-making with printouts, yeah. even though those are going to be essential as part of the armamentarium of the clinician. And so <clears throat> this is not about digging in heels and saying, if we don't get back to the past, I'm going to be miserable forever. <clears throat> it's about saying, how do I understand the plight of the patient and the plight of the profession? And how do I roll up my sleeves and get involved? And there are places and people and organizations that are doing this every day. This is not some uh, ethereal, it's never been done. But there are solutions that are out there. And one of the things that I find the most exciting is this notion of the debate over is healthcare a right or a privilege? And is it part of a, a social justice, et cetera? I have had meaningful conversations. I've spoken to the American governors. I've been to the White House. I've spoken to the Senate. The meaningful conversations with people from what you would consider the traditional capitalistic conservative world, who by the time we were done said, my gosh, I think we might need universal coverage. And I've had plenty of people from the left who said, oh, my gosh, we, coverage is not only a good thing, but it's essential for the economy. And so there are different pathways and different data sets that can get to the same solution. Now, I'm not holding my breath that it's going to come out of the Washington, D.C. of 2019. <laughs> it's going to have to come out of com communities and states, but it's going to come from a different type of leadership, and included in that leadership has to be professionals like physicians. Yeah. You know, this is such an amazing conversation, and I'm so happy that you are uh, spearheading it. I mean, you've got some great resources. I do want my listeners to understand that you have authored two incredible books, The Doctor Crisis, so calming fears, alleviating suffering, excuse me, alleviating suffering and enhancing and saving lives. What a great resource for your colleagues for this conversation and also Healer Leader Partner, a manual. So another resource for effective physician leadership. So there are places that folks can go uh, to get out of that burnout and to start being part of this larger conversation and the larger solutions and also your articles like transforming medicine with technology and teams really absolutely unbelievable. And you can find those all at jackcochranmd.com. So you've given us a lot to think about um, just to sum things up. 
what is a, a couple things, a number of things that physicians should begin doing starting today based on your thoughts? Number one is to try to understand the contrast between the miracles, the breakthroughs, the cures, and the fact that we still have unevenness of access, unevenness of quality, and, and, and the fact that not everybody gets the right care all the time. So the contrast is important because the potential is out there. And how do we go and close that gap? Because we're doing it in terms of how we get outcomes on treating many diseases. And how do we do that at a bigger level? And at the same time, how does the profession continue to reinvent itself, rebrand uh, itself, and, and to reinvent that 21-year-old idealist? Because I've got a little secret for you. There are happy doctors out there. There are doctors who believe that their daily work is meaningful and relevant, and they're not, uh, they're not oddballs. There are happy doctors. And so there is a, a, a burgeoning... A body of understanding about the profession and burnout and, and where you get more hope and more support. And these are tangible. The physician dilemma about burnout has been treated, unfortunately, by two extreme opinions. One opinion is, oh, the poor people, it's just terrible. It must be awful. It must be difficult to be a doctor. I just feel so sorry for them. No help. That has nothing tangible attached to it that says, here's what we're going to do. It's, it feels good. It sounds good. The other one is screw them. You know, they get, they make a good living. They're respected. A lot of people would like to be doctors. Time to get over it. Again, no help. Long on opinion, long on emotion, short on solution. What we have to do with the profession is what we do with cancer and what we do with other diseases. Study it. What is the hypothesis? What are the problems? What are the solutions? We have a network of hundreds of thousands of hospitals and doctors in this world who are suffering from the same problems. Do we have an engaged network, a coalition of courageous colleagues who are working on these problems together? No. We are working in isolation in our own little offices, our own little hospitals, and we have insufficient communal learning. So there is a lot of opportunity out there. We have to start by identifying the problems and deeply understanding it, and then we have to do some things to organize ourselves and to invest to get better. We have to organize ourselves. I would say the first step is to opt in, to understand deeply the plight of the patient so you can start to see what would be your vision of a different of a different world. The next is to structure for efficiency and efficacy. These are the ACOs, the Mayo Clinic, the Kaiser Permanente. Trying to transform a system in an office with two doctors and four nurses is never going to work. We have to structure ourselves for efficacy and efficiency because that allows you to have a nucleus, a nidus of people who are learning together, working together, so that you can invest. You can say, Dr. Jones, you're going to only work four days a week because one day a week we're going to make you a leader and we're going to pay you and we're going to invest in that because it is important. And so you can't just always make physician leadership the Thursday night club. You're going to be chairman of surgery. You're going to have to go to the quality meeting the first Thursday of the month and the uh, executive committee the fourth Thursday of the month. That's your leadership training and your leadership time and your leadership salary, two meals. We have to, we have to create systems. We have to structure for efficacy. We have to develop good investments in leadership, both, both time and training, and in good technology that have physicians, fingerprints on them around this is not somebody else's electronic health worker. This is one we have been involved in. We've touched. We've been we've been part of it. 
once you have that, you start to say, okay, I'm going to, I need to develop a culture of measurement and improvement that is, that is linked back to that vision that I see as the, as the new 21-year-old, 20, 51-year-old idealist that says, I think we can reinvent our, our sense of self. I think we can reinvent medicine because patients are still suffering. So you develop that culture of measurement and improvement. And then along the way, you have to develop the bigger coalition. It may be the College of Cardiologists. It may be the Alliance of Community Health Plans. It may be the AMA. How do you start to develop a more linked learning industry so that we're not all reinventing the wheel in separate places? And that's very important. And the last part of that, and this is the, the, the place where the, 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 the capitalists have got to come to the table, as I always say to my buddies, here's another way we waste money. St. Saint, Saint Vincent's and... Um, and the mother house of uh, the LDS church have got uh, two hospitals on the same block, and they're both building multi-million dollar cardiac units with cardiac surgery programs. They're both doing three surgeries a day. Happens all the time. Insufficient focus on community need and collaboration and too much focus on market share and personal brand. We have to say to our senior leaders, I know how you get bonus. I know how you get things done, but we're going to have to start doing some sampling and some trials on true collaboration on what's best for the community. Has it been done? Yes, multiple times. Is it the norm? No. There was a problem in London a few years ago about the care for strokes. And one of the things about strokes is that early touch, you know, time lost, brain loss to get people into treatment is very important. And they had, I think, 30 hospitals treating strokes around London. And guess what? If you said to the 30 CEOs, who wants to stop taking stroke admissions? You don't see any hands in the air. They all go, no, we do it. We do it really well. We do it really well. And you go, really? Have you seen your data? Well, okay, right. it looks good. It's getting better. Have you seen your data compared to St. Elsewhere? And so all of a sudden, they started to look at the data. They started to create a new map for the city of London and their community. Community focus versus, versus corporate focus. And the collaboration was very tenuous and very slow at first, and they got down to like 18 or 12 stroke units. Their results were much better. Hospitals closed stroke units. It was uh, it was putting the true health of the community ahead of everything else. That's the last step. That's the last step when we start saying, we have places where we want to compete and we want to knock your socks up, state elsewhere. But we're going to have places where the community needs us to sit down at the same table and say, this community spends $4.5 billion a year on health care. How can we save a billion for the number of people that can't get in and can't get the care? Very exciting stuff. Anyway, lots of solutions, lots of people working on them, more than there were five years ago. But he's a big problem. These are big challenges. And frankly, if physicians choose to stay on the sidelines, physician as victim, they will get somebody else's version of the future. If physicians try to become tyrants and tell everybody else what to do, they will get kicked off the team. And so the real key is how do you become, how do you, how do you leverage the high calling of healer and the honorable trusted profession of the compassionate healer to develop yourself and your colleagues as leaders, not even full time. It can be half a day a week or just lead where you stand. And then how do you learn about the power of collaboration and partnering? And so these are roles that were not necessarily taught to any of us. As I've said many times, to become the surgeon that I was, I had four years of medical school, 
six years of surgery residency, day and night, day and night, extensive training, mentoring, monitoring, testing, and certification to become a surgeon. To become a leader in the business of healthcare was almost all just in time, on the job, trial and error. Very different pathway. But if I hadn't taken it, I might I might have been out of the profession by now because it just didn't work for me. Oh, my dear. Okay, I am so happy that you are spearheading this conversation and that you're in it to win it. I, I can tell that it, you are not going to stop anytime soon. So hashtag no victim physicians out there. It's all about being a healer, a leader, and a partner in this process. I want to talk to you even more. Uh, once again, jackcochranmd.com. Thank you so much for your work, for your service. Mindful listeners, thank you, and we'll see you next time.